0: What is terramation? Well, it's also known as human composting. And here at Return Home, we gently transform human remains into life-giving soil.
1: I was wondering if you had spent any time on Return Home's TikTok page. I have a
0: little bit. They're very um, passionate about it. So they've sent me quite a few directly.
1: (laughs) Eleanor Cummins is a science journalist. She recently wrote about the human composting movement and one of the companies return home at the forefront, which has a pretty dynamic TikTok page. Today's question is, does human composting require the use of worms or bugs of any kind? And I've got the answer. The answer is no, by the way. I asked Eleanor how accurate she thought the TikToks
0: were. Having been inside the facility and, and seen some of this a little bit closer, um, I think that they're pretty accurate. Um, and I think that that is a real break from tradition in terms of, you know, the way that the funeral industry has typically related to public education, which is like, we're not going to talk about this at all in any way ever, including if directly asked. Um, and I think also, you know, it's pretty fun. I think they have like a, a good sort of sense of, of what uh, a popular TikTok
1: is like. Yeah. Hashtag human composting. Right. Absolutely. Who could resist? Today on the show, Eleanor is going to take us inside the world of human composting, a movement that's pushing for a greener way of returning us all to the earth. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future, in this case, maybe our literal future, will be determined. Stick around. If you've ever composted your kitchen scraps or garden clippings, you are probably familiar with the basic process. It requires greens, aka your nitrogen-rich leftover broccoli stems or apple peels, and browns, the carbon-rich stuff like dry leaves or wood chips. When they get together, microbes get to work and things start to break down. When it comes to natural organic reduction, aka human composting, the process is surprisingly similar. A body is washed and dressed in a biodegradable gown, then placed in the composting vessel. At Return Home, which Eleanor visited for her recent article for The Verge, the vessels look like giant picnic coolers. Really anything um,
0: biodegradable can sort of be placed alongside it. So you'll have family adding, you know, um, love notes um, or, uh, you know, I remember the first time I ever met the CEO, Micah, he was like, you can put anything in love notes or ham sandwiches. And the body and all of those other sort of materials are placed on a bed of alfalfa, sawdust, and straw. And so that's going to be sort of the browns of the compost, if you will, and the is the greens. The vessel is closed. And... Um, all of the microbes in your stomach are actually going to do the work of decomposition. Hmm. So when those microbes are no longer you know, eating our food, digesting that for us, they start to digest us. Um, so those microbes, they really just need a little bit of um, heat, moisture, and uh, a lot of oxygen um, so that they can perform what's called aerobic digestion.
1: After about a month in the vessel, most of the body has broken down into what just looks like dirt. The bones are then removed and crushed into smaller pieces, then placed back in the vessel.
0: And so that last stage is sort of letting the soil rest. So um, there's an additional sort of month where the temperature in the vessel comes down. Um, the uh, the sort of materials start to solidify into what we would recognize as soil. And, you know, 60 days later, um, what you'll have is a, a totally safe um, pathogen-free soil that can be used to grow a tree or, um, you know, Uh, nourish a garden. like It really can be used in any way that
1: uh, other soil could be. The end product looks not unlike a fine-grained mulch. If you didn't know, you'd probably think it was from a garden store. There was one woman in your story who referred to the soil product at the end as mom post. (laughs)
0: Yes. Yes. I um, spoke with a family who has done this process recently um, at Return Home, the Gerberdings. And Rachel was um, one of the funniest... Uh, sources i've i've ever met. It was very meaningful to her to be able to do um the human composting process but she also knew that she was doing something kind of funny and spooky and she really liked that. Um and so yeah, she called the the product mompost, her brother called the vessel um their mother's terrarium. They had all of these sorts of of names and kind of inside jokes about about this process. Um and yeah, i think that they were really happy um with with sort of that end product. Because as Rachel said to me, you know, I'm going to be able to use this in my garden and feel like my mother is with me, and um, you know, every time I'm tending to my plants.
1: You spent some time at the return home facility. I, I wonder if you could tell me just like, what does it look like? What's it like inside? Were people in there kind of spending time with their loved ones' vessels? It's not much to look out from the outside. It just sort of looks like
0: a, a hangar um, style facility um, like any other. Um, and it's surrounded you know, by like scrap metal recyclers and uh, RV repairmen. And when you enter, um, you're in this sort of nondescript little office area. But if you pass through that, you open into this huge, you know, tall facility where sort of the first time I went, there were these kind of Costco-like um. You know, like bookcases that stretched all the way up to the ceiling, but instead of like bulk toilet paper, it was these vessels for composting human bodies. Wow! And so that's sort of the the front of house where that first thirty days unfolds, right? And and the the body is being sort of actively digested. Um, Then if you kind of go farther into the facility, there's an additional set of rooms. And back there is where um, that second, uh, you know, month-long process of um, processing the bones and then kind of letting that soil rest takes place. Um, And that looks, you know, like, again, kind of like a warehouse facility like any other.
1: The process of composting a human body might seem unsettling or even gross, But it's also slower and less abrupt than having a body taken away to be embalmed or cremated. At return home, the staff quickly realized that people actually wanted to spend that extra time sitting with the vessels and grieving their loved ones. So now
0: over those sort of Costco-style shelves, you'll see these beautiful um, panels of of sort of greenery, like printed forest um, that can move back and forth so they can still do all the work of natural organic reduction. But it looks very um, bright and welcoming. They've set out sort of little um, kind of areas where families can sit in front of the vessels. Um, they have, you know, a Sonos like surround speaker system. So you can play whatever sort of music you want. Um, people bring books, guitars, like truly, however you, you want to spend your time there. Um, it, they've, they've really made space for that. Um, but yeah, at, at, you know, in sort of it's bare bones, it's, it's one of the most you know industrial spaces i've spent an extended amount of time in i thought that juxtaposition was so fascinating right the the sort of mechanical work that has to go into mimicking this natural process
1: traditionally the burial process in the us involves you know embalming and and preserving the body and i would imagine in this case that there is none of that right because it it has to decompose well, what what's the environmental impact of this process. I guess that must have been appealing to the people who chose to do this. The traditional um,
0: American Christian funeral uh, has a lot of sort of upfront environmental costs, um, you know, according to its critics. Um, What you'll find is that, you know, traditionally the body was embalmed and that involves, uh, you know, a carcinogen um, called formaldehyde. And it's literally designed to stop the body from breaking down. Also, in traditional embalming, you know, you'd be placed inside a wood casket that's also trying to prevent you from breaking down. That casket would be then placed in a concrete burial chamber that's trying to prevent you from breaking down. So, all of this is sort of turned on its head in human composting, and the goal is like actually, how quickly can we sort of you know accelerate this process of um, returning to soil, so to speak? Um, so, I think that environmentally, that's a huge pull, especially in the Pacific Northwest um, where where I'm from, and I think that you know, some of the ways that they have created a greener process are obviously they're they're removing a lot of these um you know sort of permanent elements from burial like the casket. Um they are reusing the vessels, right? They have a, a sort of standard set. Um one person passes through in about 30 days the next person can then come in. Um you know the facilities tend to be run on um you know green energy that's purchased from the grid so that it's uh, kind of contributing to this carbon neutral premise. Um and then all of the sort of out outputs um, from the process um, are also scrubbed on the back end. So any emissions coming out of the facility are are going to um, be also sort of fairly neutral because they've been able to, to kind of ground, you know, sort of carbon emissions. Um, also just, you know, the smelly sort of volatile organic compounds that make the smell of decomposition, all of those things are being strained before it's released. So they've really tried to reduce the impact at every stage.
1: The people you met who were were doing this, or or who were mourning their loved ones. Um, tell me about them. Were they religious? Were they from the same socioeconomic group? Were they different? Like, w- give me some biographical sketches here.
0: Sure. So from what I understand, um, in having sort of, you know, <laughs> uh, orbited return home for the better part of a year, they have a fairly diverse, um, clientele. Um, I, I think that, you know, I've heard about every sort of funeral from, um, um, you know, a a sort of Hawaiian, um, you know, family to the family that I covered in my story for The Verge who were Mormon. Um, So really running the gamut. I think that they've had a younger clientele than they expected. And that was also part of what made this experience so emotional for the people running the company is that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of young people who, for, you know, whatever reason have, um, you know, terminal diagnoses are are calling them up and saying, promise me you'll take my body. Um, And so a lot of people in their 30s, and 40s um, have, have sort of opted in. Um, but I, I think that what people do have in common is a sense that this is going to give them the control, um, you know, over, over the process that they're looking for, as in the body isn't whisked away. The, Mm -hmm. the process is in a sort of pre-made package that, that takes very little of the, the sort of family's personal details into consideration. You know, all of those are things that I think that we can say, um, you know, we would be critical of the the traditional American funeral industry as it exists. It's like, how, how do we do this from scratch? And I think people want to be um, a part of that because it makes them feel like, they're actually a part of something which i think the you know other sort of methods of burial have kind of obviated um that that role for for the living
1: the people you talk to who either you know were thinking about this for themselves or who were there thinking about their loved ones why did they choose to do this
0: the people that i have spoken to most directly i think chose it because it felt like it resonated with them spiritually. So it's a very technical process and that's what I was interested in, right? Is how does this work get done? But in talking to people, I think it's something that they had a feeling might align with their values. And and those values can be, you know, sort of multitudinous, like, right? Like environmental values, but also just like taking time, um, doing something a little new. I think that they they often see themselves as sort of pioneering spirits as well, like willing to experiment. and kind of think non-traditionally. And I think too, you know, there's a lot of this that it's seen in opposition often, right, to the sort of traditional American Christian burial. But I think it also is in many ways, kind of a return of, of other, you know, indigenous practices, um, of values from, um, you know, Judaism and Islam, which are focused on, you know, getting the body into the ground as soon as possible um, in, in sort of the least, um, you know, mediated form. Um, so I, I think that, that people are kind of attracted to it for those reasons, where it feels, it feels simple, clean, generative, um, and, and a little
1: bit pathbreaking. Natural organic reduction was first legalized in 2019 in Washington, where Return Home is located. Since then, it's slowly expanded to Oregon, California, Colorado, and Vermont. In New York, the state legislature passed a bill approving human composting, but it's been sitting with the governor for about a year.
0: I think that advocates would like to see this in as many states as possible, but that's going to take time because they have to take one state on <laughs> every legislative cycle. And it does take a lot of, of sort of resources to convince people um, you know, that this is uh, something worth doing. How much does it cost? The process um, costs between 5500 and $7,000 right now, depending on which company you go
1: with. That's cheaper than the average funeral.
0: It is, yes. It is cheaper than um, the the sort of um, full-on traditional American funeral, but it is significantly more than direct cremation, which we're seeing, um, you know, arise in as well. Um, I think the reason that people would sort of evaluate those two and go with human composting is that cremation um, is also an environmental sort of hazard, if you will. Um, The average cremation releases about 500 pounds of carbon emissions um, through uh, that intense flame um, generating process. Um, And so I think that, you know, people are are kind of measuring it against all of these things.
1: How big an industry are we talking about? Like, is there any way to gauge the growth of the industry and I guess also the demand? I think that um, the business element of this has really
0: not been worked out. I think we're seeing it happen in real time where these companies are trying to figure out what is a sustainable, um, you know, sort of rate of growth for them. What's happening is uh, that we're seeing companies that are really determined to scale rapidly. I spoke, for example, with a company called Earth, and their idea is that, you know, in the next two years or so, depending on, you know, sort of factors like the recession, um, they would like to have regional hubs all over the country um, that they would be able to um, bring sort of anybody in a few hundred mile radius to that facility compost everyone there in a sort of direct cremation style and then ship the remains back to the family in the form Hmm. of that soil. Um, So, you know, I think that they're hoping that they alone could have a capacity in the low thousands, um, but that will definitely take time. What I also think we can expect um, to see in the next few years is that as this process sort of steadily legalizes, I think a lot of local funeral homes are going to um, purchase um, one or two units and provide the process in-house alongside
1: traditional burial and other options. When we come back, big death pretty skeptical of human composting. Natural organic reduction is still a very new industry. In Eleanor's reporting process, she got a remarkably candid look at how Return Home was ironing out both technical problems and human ones. The company's CEO, Micah Truman, was blunt about how surprised he was by some of the emotional challenges in his work
0: he'd spent the 18 months prior, you know, working on really technical problems, right? Like how do you get this done and do it efficiently? Um, So he was working with, uh, you know, sort of bespoke manufacturers. They were developing uh, machines that had never existed before. Very like, you know, engineering sort of nose to the grindstone kind of energy. Then that first month I met him in um, August of 2021 or thereabouts. Um, He had, you know, taken on his first few customers and was just, I think. Blown away by what it was like to be there for people in the hardest times of their life, and to see already what the process meant to them and the level of participation that they got to have. You know, in in sort of um, preparing their loved one's body, um, you know, celebrating their life, um, and then you know, kind of keeping tabs on this composting process. So as he moved forward from there, I think that the the questions became less about the engineering and more about the sort of user experience really, right? Like what is it like to have a loved one going through this process and how can we make it better for people? So that's where you see these changes from this, you know, very industrial looking facility to a sort of warmer and more, um, you know, living person focused one. Um, You see, you know, the sort of open invitation to families to um, visit whenever they would like. And I think, too, it has raised business questions for for Micah, right? Um, because if he wants to, uh, you know, do this uh, in a way that is is very human and, and humane, I think that that changes the equation about how many people, um, you know, he can process at
1: one time. Yeah, um, I think that he hasn't really, yeah, ironed that out for himself. Obviously, this is in a handful of states now. But one of the things that is really interesting to me is, I guess, the potential for it to be in other places, do you see it as a potential disruption to the way American death works at a mass scale?
0: I think that's a great question. And It's a hard one to answer because of the way that the system works. So I think that this sort of state-by-state, you know, uh, kind of approval and legislation is a a real challenge. There's an analog here in a process called alkaline hydrolysis, which is also known as aquamation, And it's a way of dissolving a body Um, Mm. that's legal in... um, 20 or 25 states now, and that took, you know, like 20 years of effort, right, to get it legalized in in about half of states. Um, I think that natural organic reduction will probably move a little bit faster. But I think that it, it will still take time to push it through one by one. I think that the New York bill is a great example of that, right? Like the assembly approved it and the governor hasn't signed it. And the it's sort of an open question as to why that is. I think that there is some resistance from the traditional funeral industry who sort of feel as if, yes, they are being disrupted um, and aren't necessarily too pleased about it. And then I think you're also seeing resistance from a few sort of, um, you know, interest groups like the Catholic Church who feel that this is sort of a a desecration of the body. Um, But given all of those challenges, um, I think that uh, we are going to see this continue to spread um, in terms of like, you know, the actual number of available units to customers. I think that greener burial is an American value um, that is really becoming well articulated um, and, and something that has a lot of services um, actually attached to it now. So I think that that is sort of an unstoppable force. And even the most traditional funeral director would, would sort of acknowledge, right, that, that this is uh, where the, the sort of
1: trends are heading. Yeah. I mean, you, you've spent a lot of time thinking about the, the funeral business. Like, how, how big is it? How powerful is it? It's an incredibly
0: um, powerful force and all the more so because uh, people don't want to think about or talk about it. So it it sort of operates with impunity. Um, It's like
1: here, do what you got to do.
0: Yes, exactly. I think people are like, I don't want to know anything about that, so I'm going to assume that everything is working smoothly. And the answer in a lot of cases could not be farther from the truth. Um, This sort of state-by-state regulation has created a system um, where there's immense regulatory capture. So instead of regulating in favor of consumers, the industry has been able to regulate in its own favor. So this is where you get these astronomical prices for, you know, the sort of typical traditional funeral, which is running people like $10,000 today. It's because the industry has created these circumstances under which it's not possible to do it cheaper. Um, I think one great example is in New York State. um, There's a system where um, every funeral director, even if they don't offer embalming, even if that's not a service that they want to provide people, has to maintain access to um, an embalming facility. And so the overhead on that is like, you know, I think A figure I've seen put on that is like an additional $25,000 a year just to have access to a facility you may never use. That then becomes a cost for the consumer where, um, you know, every little one of these laws, which no one has ever taken the time to look at or challenge, um, becomes an additional fee that we're paying when, uh, you know, we're in distress, our loved one has died, and and we've got to get their body, um, you know, taken care of in one way or another.
1: How is the industry responding as a whole, or is it, to, to NOR and its kind of emergence?
0: I think that for now, it feels to them fairly contained. These weird hippies are doing
1: this on the West Coast,
0: whatever. Totally. And I think that the the sort of place that it's emerging from is already some of the most, you know, progressive funeral spaces in the country. Like Seattle funeral directors before natural organic reduction were already, you know, on the green burial movement. So NOR was just like, you know, a kind of continuation of that. I think that as it spreads, um, there are some people who feel very resistant to this and other changes in the industry. I think that, you know, NOR is just one example among dozens um, of of sort of a very, very long time coming disruption to the way that the funeral industry practices. And I mean, I attended the National Funeral Directors Association convention last October. And there were like people standing up and having like very loud, I don't want to say yelling, but very loud conversations, very heated conversations about what's happening to the industry and whether they want to be in it. I mean, there were, you know, older white men threatening to retire over everything from, um, you know, LGBTQ friendly business policies to things like, um, you know, more environmentally friendly funeral practices. But I think there's a new generation of funeral directors coming in from all over the country from, you know, every nook and cranny who really believe in this kind of stuff. And they're gonna continue to make sure it's available to their customers.
1: But it's not just the traditional funeral industry standing in the way of natural organic reduction becoming more mainstream. Americans just don't like talking about death.
0: I think that there is like a real sort of just like primal aversion to to talking um, about really any method in detail. Like if we were to sit down and talk about embalming, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, I I would have defended that five seconds ago. And now I, I never want to think about it again. This is awful. And I think that because it's a new technology. It has to explain itself in a way hmm. that the old technologies haven't been, you know, questioned um, for decades. And so so we're in this like sort of difficult position where the NRR companies are like, you know, here's how we work. And some people really respond to that well. And other people are like, why are you telling me this? I never wanted to know. Um, in terms of, of other sort of specific pushback, um, I think that, you know, there is a feeling um, that that this is is sort of like unholy. There's also sort of like a religious hmm. dimension that I think is is kind of added onto that that physical aversion.
1: That this is sort of taken away from the ritual ways in which we process and understand death and and find comfort from religion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Catholic Church has said that you know NOR is. Um, more appropriate for vegetable trimmings and eggshells than for human bodies. You know, that that's sort of um one of the diocese stances on this. Um, and I think that, you know, that makes sense. And uh people who feel that way will never have to do NOR. Um, I think that for the the you know customers who are very um, excited about this idea, for them it feels more like a return to sort of natural ways. And to some degree, you know they have some real evidence behind them. But I have to say, like the traditional American funeral is like 160 years old. It's not an ancient practice, right? It's it's not sort of innate to the human experience that we do things this way.
1: I was about to ask you about Drew Gilpin Faust's book, *This Republic of Suffering*, which was a sort of transformative read for me because I had not thought about the very intimate at-home experience of death that that most Americans had prior to the Civil War. And that's when things started to change. And I wonder if, having gone through the past few years and lost more than a million people to COVID, if you think there might be some space for Americans to Rethink how we feel about death. Rethink that distance that we have put between ourselves and something that will happen to all of us. I
0: think that NOR can be seen as as one sort of attempt to reacquaint ourselves with this process. Right? For people who do like to hear about it, who do want to participate it, who you know in it, who have um, put their families through this process, I think that it is something that. That proximity is what's appreciated. Those details are are what they desire. Um, They they want to sort of lift the veil. Um, Whether that's true for everyone, um, I guess sort of remains to be seen. I I do think that it's important to say, you know, that that right now NOR really is in some ways a sort of a sort of small um, and kind of culture-bound, you know, sort of option. But I, I feel that when it comes to these questions of proximity that people are trying to find ways through, you know, the home funeral movement, um, through green burial, whether that's, you know, NOR or, or just sort of, you know, in a, a designated forest, um, whether it's going through the traditional process, but asking
1: a funeral director, if you can be the one to help prepare your family member. Right. Did doing this story make you think about what you wanted to happen to your body when you die? Yeah. I think I'm always thinking
0: about that. Um, I think that for me, I am attracted to NOR in a way that, just for personal reasons, I'm I'm not as attracted to a process like acclamation. Um, I am drawn to that sort of um, new frontiers um, kind of element of it. I, I like that idea of of participating in something um, that feels burgeoning and and exciting and new. Um, but I think at the end of the day, for me it would really be about what my loved ones wanted and what worked for them. And I think that you see this in this Verge story I wrote where I focused on the daughter of a person who died, right? More than more than the mother who had actually passed away because it was the daughter who was like, this is important to me. This is what I want. And this is the way that I'll get to feel close to you. And her mother, hmm. you know, said, yeah, go for it. Like I'll, I'll be dead. Um, and so I think that, you know, this process just really does center the living. And I hope that that's what people would say um, about whatever my family decides for me, you know, when I die.
1: Eleanor Cummins, thank you very much. Thank you. Eleanor Cummins is a freelance science journalist. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of Audio for Sleep. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. You can get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.